0: Mission Log Supplemental, number 32, the one with Adam Nimoy.
1: Welcome to Mission Log Supplemental number 32. I'm Can Ray. And I'm John Champion. Today, we mark a sad
0: anniversary. In a sort of a happy way. Uh, It was the 27th of February, 2015 that we lost Leonard Nimoy. And unbeknownst to most
1: of us at the time, he was actually in the middle of a project. Yeah, he and his son Adam had started developing a documentary uh, specifically about Spock. Then, of course, with Leonard's passing, uh, the tone of the documentary shifted a bit. So For the Love of Spock is still about Spock, but it's about a lot more than that as well. And if you
0: haven't seen it yet, you can stream it on Netflix or download it at iTunes, or you can pick it up on uh, DVD or Blu-ray. You don't need to have seen it before today's show, but we will talk about some of the details from the movie.
1: Yeah. So we did want to talk to him about the movie, as John says, but he's done more than that. So we wanted to talk to Adam about some of the work that he's done, actually, in the Star Trek universe, and uh, some of the other work that he's done as well. So we're going to spend the next hour or so celebrating Leonard Nimoy's life and getting to know Adam.
0: Adam, before we talk about For the Love of Spock, I have to say that
1: I recently watched
0: uh, The Outer Limits iRobot that you shot with your father in 95 mm-hmm. and around there. Sounds so- about right. Yeah. Really fun episode. Really good. Um, not based on the Isaac Asimov iRobot. Um, Was it you who wanted to bring in your father to do that role?
2: Well, it was originally my dad's idea. We had um, both read in the trades that they were going to be rebooting that series uh, on Showtime. And uh, and my dad was in an episode entitled I, Robot, in the the early 60s. And he thought it might be an interesting idea if we remade that episode uh, together. It would help me uh, launch my directing career. And, uh, and get me another uh, episode under my belt, uh, which turned out to be very helpful to me, actually. So um, the issue we were having was that the producers at the time were—it was a Canadian content show. They were only hiring uh, Canadian directors and writers uh, for the tax uh, credits that they would get. Um, but uh, Dad suggested that I approach them and tell them that if, they would, that if they would give me the assignment to direct the episode, that he would come on as, as a guest star. Uh, and they bought that idea and uh we were uh uh you know we were really happy to be able to do that together and collaborate together on that. We worked on the script uh with the uh, with the writer um and we had a really good time um, you know, a lot of challenging issues when we were shooting it, but it was really great working with him.
1: I had a, I had a question sort of about uh directing it in general, if I may. Um it was something like the outer limits. I mean that's that's uh, sort of a one and done kind of thing. And then with uh, Star Trek titles, you of course bring a certain lineage. Yeah, but I'm looking over your credits here, and it's—I'm thinking about things like Ally McBeal, NYPD Blue, Gilmore Girls. You know, that's not where, the one where you'd say, "Ah, yes, Nimoy." And the one with the science fiction experience—let's bring him in. I'm curious how directors step into an established, you know, running property that's already got a voice. And and kind of like put their own spin on it without without you know spinning the whole thing out of control. Well, it
2: depends on the show. I mean, if it's been going for a while, like when I came on board with uh, the Next Generation, I think that was season five, probably. They've, they've established what the show is going to look like and how they want that show to be produced. Uh, and it's not my job to to mix it up and uh, and rock the boat. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do, as TV directors, have some leeway in terms of our creativity, particularly in terms of performance with guest actors uh, and some of the transitions, some of the camera angles that we use. Uh, there is some room for movement. But when you're on a new series or you're on an anthology series like uh, Outer Limits, there's, there's much more uh, leeway to kind of uh, invent things and create things and create the look for the show and I find it much more fun actually to be on early on and uh, some of the shows I'd done uh, to kind of stretch that creative uh, uh, bent and element and and, ju- and get those juices rolling but otherwise um, those shows that I got on were basically because I was um, you know pounding the pavement and observed for some time on I was you know watching on picket fences and And then the practice uh, for quite a while before I got assignments on uh, the practice and then Allie McBeal and then David Kelly camp. And the same thing was true with NYPD Blue. I was, I was standing around observing for quite some time before I, they were, felt confident enough to give me an assignment. So it just had a lot to do with persistence and my desire to really branch out. I mean, I would really enjoy the, the Star Trek experience, and I was very lucky to start out with the next gen. But um, I really wanted to kind of expand a little bit and, uh, and see what else I could do.
1: It's actually interesting when you talk about uh, guest actors and and yet at the same time established series. Uh, I think your first episode of Next Gen was Rascals, and you're working with very established characters, uh, but different actors playing those characters. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, one of the warnings that you get when you
2: start out early on as a director is it's very challenging to work with animals and kids. <laughs> and, and my first show out of the box was working with these younger versions of, of uh, members of the uh, Enterprise crew on The Next Gen. So very challenging and um, very difficult. It's so interesting that I had spent an entire season observing directors on The Next Generation and getting to know the cast and the production personnel and the crew and... um And really, you know, really studied uh, following a lot of the directors around as to how it's done. But you really can't get a sense of what it's really like until you're sitting in the hot seat and directing those episodes. Very, very challenging, very long days, very difficult work. And then on top of it, to have young, inexperienced actors, um, kids in essence, uh, portraying uh, members of the Enterprise crew, that was, you know, an additional kind of. curveball uh thrown my way. But um all you know, all great in the you know, chalked up to experience and all very satisfying to do.
0: So uh, let's talk a bit about for the love of Spock. I would say this way. We wanted to talk to you in depth today about that. And um I, I want to understand uh starting with the timeline of how that project came about because I know that you know, you'd done the Kickstarter, and, and there was a lot of attention around that. And then when I was watching it, um, you say early on that you and your father had really talked about this, about doing a documentary about Spock. And I'm trying to sort of put the pieces together uh, for that timeline. He had announced his diagnosis with uh, CPOD um, relatively, you know, early on. And, and people, I think, knew that he was sort of winding down his public and professional life mm-hmm. in order to spend time with family. Um, so at, at what point, then, do you two start talking about, well, what should we do and,
2: and what shape that would take? Well, you know, it, it was an idea that I approached him about. This is uh, probably November of 2014. Um, and uh, we had worked together on a documentary about his life growing up, his early life in Boston. We'd been out in Boston a year and a half before with a camera crew running around town, and Dad was kind of telling anecdotes of um, various uh, episodes of his life, selling newspapers in the Boston Common and uh, and where their, uh, the family home was in the West End of Boston. And we had such a really great bonding experience doing that that I wanted to kind of uh, create another project with him, and I just thought that with the fiftieth anniversary of the, the the air date of the original series coming up, I thought that we should do something together to celebrate fifty years of Star Trek, half a century of Spock and so this idea of making another documentary about Spock came to mind, uh, and I approached him about it uh, in I think it was November of two thousand and fourteen and and uh, he was very enthusiastic about the idea, and he even reminded me that we were right then at the 50th anniversary of the beginning of production of the very first pilot. Um, he told me it was, I, I believe, immediately after Thanksgiving weekend they started production on The Cage. And so um, it was all very timely for us to be doing together. But then, And at that time, he wanted to be clear that the project would really be all about Spock. I mean, my dad had a, a great sense of humility and didn't really want to um, uh, you know, blow his own horn by having a documentary about Leonard Nimoy in addition to the character of Spock so um, that 's where it really it all started, and we started doing research together and he was on the internet and looking up spock 's ears and came back with one hundred and fifty thousand websites, which. You know, reference box ears, which he got a kick out of, and we were, you know, and then we, and then he suggested that we approach Dave Zappone to come on board to help produce because he knew that Dave had worked extensively with Bill Shatner on a number of Star Trek documentaries, and and Dave knew the ropes and and knew all the players and could get the job done, and and that was you know absolutely the case, uh, a wise choice working with Dave because he knows so much about Star Trek. Um, and then um, we you know we just started developing ideas. I really was developing a script on what the this show would look like. We, I was even considering having my dad play it as sort of a in search of episode with him narrating and you know in search of <laughs> the search for Spock in search of Spock and um, and kind of like having him host it a little bit. Uh, and then my dad, when my dad passed away, it became very clear. That was in the uh, end of February of 2015. That's when we uh, took a break at first and then decided that we were going to expand this movie to, in fact, include the life and legacy of Leonard Nimoy. Uh, and it wasn't until uh, in June is when we actually had the Kickstarter campaign which concluded on July 1st. And then in April the following year, we had a movie to debut at the Tribeca Film Festival. So we we worked pretty fast and hard to make it happen on time.
0: Did he, I mean, obviously he knew that he was ill, even Mm -hmm. starting out on this project. Do you think, and it might just be speculation, was this a way to sort of put a button on the character that 50 years this is a a legacy and now this is my way to... Sort of say goodbye to that character.
2: Yeah, I mean, we were we were trying to kind of bookend his whole career with Spock, and mm-hmm. I was really felt privileged to be a part of it. Particularly because my father was approached by, um, you know, the the production staff um, at uh, Bad Robot, JJ Abrams, about participating in this last Star Trek installment, um, uh, Star Trek Beyond, and he he was uh, he had to turn it down because he simply didn't feel well. He didn't think he could uh, he could do it physically. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was a very sad kind of um, turning point for him, for my dad, because he had been with Star Trek since the very beginning and then showed up in these J.J. J. Abrams reincarnation of Star Trek. So he's like really had a longer history with Star Trek than anybody else, really. And he felt a great sense of pride about that. So that when he had to turn them down, because he didn't feel that he was going to be well enough to do that film, um, I think it gave him great solace to know that we would be working on a bookend project together, uh, and his sort of final farewell to the fans and Star Trek, uh, and uh, and and final tribute to the character of Spock. And I really felt that, you know, the privilege of of being you know orchestrating that with him. Um, and he felt, you know, we we didn't anticipate his, his demise as quickly as it happened. Frankly, I mean, I was talking about getting a camera crew in to film him and interview him and get his last thoughts about Spock in January of of last, uh, uh, not last year, but 2015. And and he felt um, fine. And said so there's no hurry. Um, you know, I just don't, I can't get into, involved with a, a feature film production, but I'm, I'm going to be fine. Um, but then, you know, eight weeks later, he was gone. So that was a bit of a shock for all of us.
1: I, I remember... I mean, I was following him on Twitter at the time, and I think he had just, like, tweeted something. It was nice, but it was random a couple of days before. I mean, you're right. I mean, everybody knew that, everybody knew that time was coming, but nobody had any idea that it was coming so quickly. Um, uh, forgive me. I, I, you covered your relationship with your dad in this movie. Um, originally, the movie was going to be about Spock. What's your relationship with that character? I mean, we're going to obviously be talking about your dad all the way through, but I'm curious, like, do you feel an affinity for Spock or was Spock like a job that your dad did? I mean, where are you and that character tied together?
2: Well, you have to understand that the film is my film. It's my creation and my, you know, it came out of an idea that I had in my mind and uh, For the love of Spock is my title that I mean I invented that title, so th- that should give you some idea of of the feelings uh, about my feelings about Spock have always been very you know passionate, a uh, great source of pride the The issues uh, where there 's somewhat of a wrinkle in all that is when I had issues with my father on a personal level, uh, and we talk about this in the film that that when my dad and I were not getting along, it was a lot more difficult. Uh, to be um, constantly exposed to images of Spock in public because he 's everywhere he 's he's so iconic and um, he 's so, he's so ever present in popular culture, even contemporary popular culture that you you can 't it 's difficult to watch a movie, a TV show or or you know open up the newspaper without at some point in time seeing an image or a reference to Spock um, that 's the only time when I would have uh, mixed feelings about uh, about Spock because he 's so highly obviously identified with my dad but but you know since there's been there was resolution with my father, um, which we also talk about in the film, um, that issue is no, really, no longer really present, and I just feel a great sense of uh, attachment and love affection pride uh, with the character i mean i 'm looking out the window of of your your sound studio here. And and there's a there's a mural of uh, a, a framed picture of the first uh, promo mural that they had that NBC published of, of Star Trek, uh, and um, we had been waiting for that thing to show up in TV Guide. I had been at the at the market supermarket looking for a TV Guide added Star Trek uh, weeks before. Ever showed up. And when it finally did, that was the ad they used. And it was a very, you know, I look at it now and I'm still excited about it the way I was when I was a kid. I was I was uh, 10 years old when the series uh, first aired. So um, I have a very close affinity and affection for Spock.
0: You have that great footage, and I, I think, I assume that everybody listening to this show has seen the footage of you or the photo of you coming out onto the bridge, and they had put the ears on you. And It's just a great, very human moment, very genuine moment. Um, you know, that's something that nobody in our audience and, and nobody in the world can experience, which is. Being at Desilu on a soundstage in 1967. You know, here you were 11, 12 years old. And you, you said that you spent a lot of time there, that days off from school, you would
2: sort of go to work with your dad, you know? Yeah, well, this is actually in 66 when they started mm-hmm. filming the first season, which began, I think it was the last days of May and June of 66. That uh, incident where I was. Um, I was put on the in the turbo lift behind Spock, and, and then came out uh, in that blooper reel footage. Uh, that occurred in July, uh, and they were shooting one of the early episodes. What little girls are made of, I think it's called. Um, and this is you know this is five weeks, six weeks before the show even aired. So, uh, you know, I really—and I was excited about it. I'm nine years old at the time, and I've been watching a lot of TV, and I was a sci-fi fan. I was a Lost in Space fan and, and Outer Limits. Uh, and and so it was like uh, part of the demographic that they were appealing to. And I was very conscious of the excitement surrounding the show. And it was a lot of fun being there. I was really fortunate to spend a lot of time there because I was old enough where I could run around a little bit without my dad having to watch me, uh, you know, all day. And I could be on my own. Um, so it, it was just the timing was just perfect for me. And. Um, and I just fell in love with it immediately. It was a very, very exciting. Uh, we had no idea what it was going to turn into, obviously. But you can't help but be, you know, it's just infectious. They're so good at what they were doing. I was watching them film scenes. Uh, they were so, um, all, the cast was excellent. They were so determined. They were so professional. They, they gave the best that they had to give. I mean, I've often said that Star Trek could have been a very campy kind of spin off, goofy satire on space exploration. But um, but everybody really played, was very serious about the roles they played, not the least of which was my father's Spock. And and um, I just was, um, it's, it was like, it was a great experience for a 10-year-old, and it was a very unique experience. I was going to ask you, what does a 10-year-old do on set all day long? <laughs> when, you know. Well, you run around into the, you know, on the, on the main stage, they had... Uh, they had the engine room. They had sick bay. They had, uh, captain's cabins and some of the quarters from the crew. They had the bridge of the enterprise. They had the transporter room. You run around and looking at all this stuff, you know, um, uh, Jim Ruggs special effects office was on one of the stages where they made these resin molds for all those knobs on the enterprise and all this, uh, you know, and, and they were making all these things, uh, watching that happen, uh, watching them shoot, going to the commissary, uh, running around the Desilu lot. I mean, you know, uh, Being in makeup and watching dad get made up and there's, you know, uh, getting pictures of dad and having him sign them and bills and D sign stuff Uh, being in dad's office, uh, having lunch with those guys. I remember distinctly uh, one day they were having lunch and, and Bill Shatner, they were having steaks and Bill got a metal trash can. And and crumpled up some paper, which he lit on fire, and then put the steaks inside of a kind of a, uh, a, like a a grill thing, you know, that you can put right on the flyer and turn it over, you know, and they're making steaks and salad right there. I mean, it's just, it was crazy, the stuff they were doing. There was so much interesting
1: stuff going on at the time that you could keep a 10-year-old occupied. It's interesting that you talk about all the different things that you can do that you were, you know, able to do on the set and what, like, would keep a, a 10-year-old occupied. I guess it would have been when you were about 11 or 12. In the movie, you talk about the fact that all of a sudden uh, all the fan mail is coming to your house, <laughs> and it became a family project to sort of, to sort of yeah, answer that. What does that look to, like to you when you're a kid? I mean, are you, I mean, is this a chore you have to do? Does it give you some sense of, like, how people are sort of yeah, Grogging what your dad's doing. I mean, uh, that that was sort of a surprising bit of the experience. Well, yeah, at first it's it's fun
2: opening the fan mail and stuffing envelopes and addressing envelopes. It's fun for about ten minutes, <laughs> uh, and then it, and then it's just a drag. I mean, it, the the problem that I had, the challenge I had, was that I was a I was a comic book fanatic, and uh, we were really in a golden age in the in the sixties. And I was always sending away for stuff. You know, they're always advertising in the comics for T-shirts and, you know, the X-ray glasses you can see through girls' clothing and all Did that kind of stuff. you remember that submarine where, you know, it was $1.98 and you get the submarine that you could build in your house? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, wanted, yeah. <laughs> so I was sending away for these things. and. Uh, It was so hard to wait to get it because we were always getting packages in the mail, but they were always addressed to Mr. Spock or Leonard Nimoy. So uh, that was really challenging for me. That was really difficult uh, to try to get stuff through the mail. That's, you know, it's just, you know, you wait for this stuff to show up and you're looking at packages arrive at the door and you think that maybe today I'll get the Spider-Man T-shirt, you know. Um, that was a really a difficult uh, period, but and, and it didn't really last long because pretty soon Dad had had gotten a a, uh, a service to take care of the fan mail. I mean, originally that fan mail was this was a big issue with Dad and Lu and and uh, and NBC uh, because they didn't want to pay to handle the fan mail; they wanted him to do it. Uh, and then they told him he, they wouldn't pay for extra pens and pencils for him to or or postage for him to actually answer that fan mails, uh, which caused a little stir at the studio. Uh, And then we had this incident where 16 Magazine accidentally put our home address in as the mailing address for the fan mail and all the fan mail got diverted to us at home and then the fans started showing up at the house. So, I mean, that you know, we... We were really uh, excited about the excitement that was surrounding Star Trek and the reaction to Star Trek and in particular, the reaction of Spock. You know, I mean, my dad had struggled for many years um, in TV and doing small bits in film and and a lot of odd jobs that he had to maintain to keep the family afloat financially. So um, this is a very exciting time for us. Uh, but we also realized very quickly that that um, celebrity and popularity and success bring new challenges, and we were all facing those challenges together as a family. Yeah,
0: you, you hit a little bit about that uh, just from the emotional side in the movie. You talk about how your father would stay in character, or at least not— Maybe not stay in character, but there was an emotional impact on him by staying in character while at work You, you, you said that he would come home and sort of be emotionally detached and maybe a little too focused on work mm-hmm. um, focused on that. I mean, do you think this is the beginning of some of those rifts that uh, that you describe?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, we, you know, the DAC was a little bit stacked against my relationship with my dad because, um, I mean, it really started earlier. This is my dad was raised in Boston during the Depression by Russian immigrant parents. And his mother, you know, they were very frugal and they were very strict uh, and they were not that forthcoming with love, affection and support and and. Uh, and encouragement and again we you know we I mentioned this and we talk about this even my dad admitted this In in my film for the love of Spock, we kind of deal with that issue. So right away, we had a very big generational gap between rift between myself and my dad. I mean, he was at ten years old. He was selling newspapers in the dead of winter in the Boston Common during the the onset of World War II in 1941. Well, when I was ten years old, I'm running around on the set of Star Trek and enjoying, you know, an incredible you know new life for ourselves. Uh, in sunny Southern California. So uh, we had very different backgrounds and, and had trouble relating to other in that respect uh, to one another. And and the fact that he was a workaholic and was really never at home, I mean, this is not a guy who would take me to a Dodger game. That's just not the kind of relationship I had with him. Um, and I had friends who did have those kind of relationships with their dads, which kind of like floored me when I saw that because I was so, it was so foreign to me. I just didn't have that kind of connection to my dad. Uh, even when he wasn't working. So, you know, it was, it was difficult to begin with. And uh, and then when, you know, when he was around a little bit more and I was in my teens, I was already creating this separate rebellious identity for myself, and that's where it really, you know, kind of was much more overt because I was, you know, much more willing to take him on as a teenager, which is not that uncommon for uh, for us guys in, in the teen department. <laughs> to do, so um, the the, re- the beginning, the, the die was cast at very, very early on for us. You mentioned that letter
0: um, that is, is sort of a, a recurrent theme in the movie, that you're referring to this letter that uh, it, did I read correctly that was written to you in 1973? Mm-hmm. And and there it is in, in his handwriting on, on a legal pad, you know, pages out of a legal pad, um, and he held on to it for what's now... 44 years that you've had that letter. Yeah. Um, I mean, did you feel like that was the moment that, that, that he finally sort of came clean with you or was trying to build that bridge with you? Because I, I know that you, you do describe these other times, uh, that mm-hmm. there were risks, that there were problems. But, but obviously, that was important to you. Obviously, that was something you wanted to hold on to.
2: Well, but the the ironic thing about the letter is I, I didn't know I was holding on to it because I didn't know that letter existed until just before— We had a production day in which we shot the film of me reading the letter. That letter appeared out of nowhere uh, in December of 2015. I had no idea that thing was in my possession. Really? Yeah.
0: So, So at some point in 1973, you got it. Yeah. And you read it then.
2: But yeah, but I, I held on to a lot of stuff. Yeah. I'm a pack rat. I mean, I have a whole yeah. collection of letters. And I was going through that collection because I knew that my dad had sent me some letters when I was away at camp. And I was kind of curious doing the research that I just felt a last-ditch effort. to, to find, I found a box filled with old letters. And I thought I should just rifle through it really quickly to see if there was anything in there from my dad. And this letter popped out. This this three and a half page legal pad letter in in handwriting from my dad addressing this, you know, the issue of some of the conflict between us when I was 17 and 73. Um, And this was just a couple of days before we were about to shoot some stuff. One of our last shooting days, production days for our documentary. And I brought in the letter and I read it to the, the, you know, my production team. Um, and and the colleagues that I was working with on this thing, and they were just floored because it just it gave his perspective of the difficulty in our relationship, which was critical, I think, to the film, because, you know, otherwise it's just me talking or my sister, you know, chiming in about some of the conflict. And I didn't have my dad to comment on any of it. But here is this letter in his voice and his handwriting from that period commenting on it. So it was a real it was a serendipitous event that that thing showed up out of nowhere.
1: That is amazing because that really is, I mean, that is the the thread in a way that, that, (laughs) <laughs> That's the thread on which the movie is strong. It's fascinating that yeah, that, as far as you knew, didn't even exist a week before uh, a week before you guys wrapped.
2: Well, there were yeah, we there were a lot of serendipitous elements that we that that came to us during the course of production of the film, and I and I just you know I, I don't believe in accidents. I, I think these things were trying to find our their way towards us. Not the least of which was you know a lot of the film and um, the imagery that we were able to to procure and secure on uh, the events that took place at Burning Man in 2015, you know, shortly after my father died. I think that footage is very powerful and very important to the film. And it also sort of appeared at the last minute. So, And and then there was a lot of uh, photographs that came in from the fans and uh, film footage and still photos from uh, my dad's work in the theater. These are all things that sort of showed up at the last minute. So um, there were a number of things that were conspiring in the universe to help us with this film.
0: Of all these elements, archival pieces that you found, was there anything you didn't get to use? Was there anything that you you feel like you kind of stumbled across?
2: And uh, this might have been a good piece of the film,
0: but you kind of left it aside.
2: Yeah, one of the pieces of film that I wanted to use, and we kept trying to figure a way to get into the movie, was this... um, this guest starring or a co-starring role that my dad uh, performed in a film called Catlow. This is the first job that he had after the after he left Mission Impossible. This is the spring of 1971, and uh, it was a western that was shot in Spain. The whole family we went to Spain in the spring of 71. Uh, it was starring Yul Brynner, and um, and Dad was kind of the heavy in that film, and. Uh, he was just excellent in it. He had a—he uh, was the bad guy, and he wore buckskin and rode a horse and had a special uh, custom-made rifle and had a black beard and and he just looked like he was kind of a brunette version of Clint Eastwood, you know, in the spaghetti westerns. And he was just excellent in it. And uh, it was kind of—it was not a—not even a B western. It was a C western. It was a very, you know, kind of poorly made film. Um, it had its moments, though, definitely. And I just loved his performance in it. But we couldn't find a way to get it into the our documentary and um, we had a, a very strict um, uh, editor, senior editor, Janice Hampton and uh, she tr- understood why I love the film but she kept you know, she, she kept saying and, and really put her foot down, it just didn't fit and it detracted from what we were trying to achieve and I kept pleading with her and she kept saying no and in the end she was right, I'm glad I had her there um, but, I, but I'm sorry we didn't get that footage in.
0: Was it uh, was it August of 2015? Was that that was your first Star Trek convention that you went to in Vegas, right? Right, that's correct. So here's this thing that had been going on for more than 40 years. These conventions, right? Did you have any idea what that was all about? So here, you know, starting the early 70s, your father and other cast members they get called away for a weekend to go to a hotel and meet fans. Did you have any idea at all what that was all about?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I did um, spend a very short period of time at a very early convention when it was in Pasadena. I think the annual conventions were in Pasadena. I was there uh, for just a couple hours. So I got a little sense of what was happening there. And I made a very brief appearance at a convention in Minneapolis. This is, I don't know, 15 years ago. Um, but th- but that that Vegas uh, convention that I went to was the first time I had ever been to a Vegas convention. The first time I'd ever spent a significant amount of time um, at at a convention, and um, and I'd also been at the Chicago convention where my dad bid farewell to the convention circuit, his last appearance. So I had a pretty good idea of what goes on at these things and that was part of the reason why I wasn't really interested in participating you know I mean I'd, I'd grown up all my life with people uh, with this mass adulation and fan reaction to dad and um, it, you know it was his thing and I respected that but it wasn't my thing necessarily and I just don't need to be there when 3,000 fans go berserk when Leonard Nimoy comes on stage and you know and, and gives him the Spock salute I just don't you know it just doesn't I don't need to, I didn't need to see that uh, all of My life, Uh, you know, it was something I understood and I was very proud of, but it was just not um, something I felt comfortable in participating in because I feel like I'm just there as Leonard's kid and and I'm a tag along and, you know, and I and I have worked very hard to establish my own identity, my own career, my own profession and and be my own man. And, And it's kind of undermined when I'm in those situations. Now, when we went to the convention in 2015, we were there for a very specific purpose, which is to get film for our movie. Uh, and when I attended the convention uh, this past year in 2016, for a very specific purpose, to promote our, our film and our movie. And, um, and it was a very enjoyable experience on a lot of levels, most notably the fact that the fans were just very happy to, to meet me. It's like, you know, they were just happy to connect with the DNA of Leonard Nimoy. Uh, and that was kind of heartwarming in a way. You know, I'm still processing the loss of my dad, mourning his loss, living in a post-Leonard Nimoy world without dad. And um, there's a community of people all over the world who are doing the same thing. So it's nice to connect with them on that level. So now it's a very different experience for me. Did your perception about, you know, clearly you you grew up
0: in it. So you knew that there were fans who were crazy about the character Spock and crazy about your father by by proxy. Did your understanding of that sort of emotional investment that fans have in the character, did that change at all? Because then, then you were in the middle of this Fan environment and talking to people, actively talking and listening to people about their memories of Spock.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I've always been, it's always been present in my life throughout my whole life. It's just, it's become much more intense that, you know, certainly um, over the past 18 months of really delving into it and really, uh, and getting people on camera to talk about it and having people come up to me and share their experiences about Spock. But the fact of the matter is, this is, you know, this is something I've been, I've lived with my entire life. When I, when I transferred to UC Berkeley uh, and finally found, housing is so tight there, I finally found a roommate and when, and. And the guy discovered that I was Leonard's son. He kind of flipped out and we went. He took me to the Federation Trading Post on Telegraph Avenue. Now, I hadn't been watching TV in the 70s and I wasn't even really aware of what was happening in the syndication market. I just was not I was just focused on other things. Um, And uh, but when I went to the Federation Trading Post, it was like, oh, my God, it was everything Star Trek. You know, this is 19. This is January of 1977. And um, the merchandise, even then, it just blew my mind. And there were images of me from that, that day I was on the set with my dad that they were selling as postcards, you know. Um, And then I was uh, studying at the dorms and at five o'clock in the dorms at at Cal Berkeley, everybody quit studying to get into the TV room to turn on Star Trek because it was on five nights a week uh, at 5 p.m. And and you don't screw around with that and you don't make noise and you don't you know, and you're not in your room studying. Everybody is crammed in the TV room. And that's when I really began to see uh, at that point. And then my dad actually came to uh, campus. Uh, At Wheeler Auditorium, a huge auditorium filled with students to hear him speak. So those, you know, those things were I was becoming more aware then of what the syndication, um, you know, the syndicated market of Star Trek was, you know, had the effect it was happening on on college campuses. And and, uh, um, it kind of like it was like a renaissance to me. And it was it was new and still very exciting, frankly.
1: I'm curious you walk into that store and not even just that store but years later forgive me I'm getting caught on like the weirdest minutiae, I know but I got to ask what is like the weirdest thing that you've ever looked at and said wow that's my dad <laughs> is there is there like one thing that you think about that's like how, how how is my dad's face on that well spock dolls I mean I'm just
2: every time I see a spock doll it'll, it always blows my mind and and uh it's just it's just a funny uh kind of incarnation of of the whole merchandising element of star trek is so funny to me and and uh those things always give me a chuckle i mean i love i love seeing it. there's so many different ones and and some are good and some are not good and my dad actually gave me a little spock image that they had at burger king or something where you press the button and he says live long and prosper and i just love that thing and uh you know i get a kick out of that I'm curious,
0: you know, your father did this show for three years. It goes away. He's clearly and wisely trying to create an identity for himself as an actor that is not Spock. Famously, the book comes out, I Am Not Spock. Um, but at a certain point, Star Trek keeps coming back, animated series, movies, and as you point out, you know, it really provided the bookend to his career. That the the last projects that he worked on in earnest were related to, to Spock. Um, I'm curious if you were aware that at some point he made a conscious effort to sort of, if not embrace or re embrace that character, but to try to dig deep and understand why it was that this had such impact. I kind of noticed that at conventions where It seemed like Leonard was the one, really above and beyond everybody else, who had given some deep introspective thought about why this was a thing that people responded to.
2: Yeah. Well, I think it was, as we talk about in the film, I think it was the conventions where it really hit him right in the face that— that people were um really emotionally connected to Star Trek very passionate about Star Trek the letter writing campaign in the third season he was aware that the letter writing you know the fan mail that he was receiving I think he was always aware um of the of the uh the, the passion of the trek fan the trekkie at the time or trekkers now um and he and he was uh I, but I think it was the conventions that really hit home for him that Star Trek and Spock were resonating on a very deep a kind of primal level um, in pop culture and throughout the community. And um, the thing about I Am Not Spock is, uh, and he's talked about this repeatedly, is that it's a mistitled book. <laughs> uh, he insisted on the title with, uh, with his publishers who, who fought him on it. Uh, and he prevailed. And the point, if you read the book, is that it's it's a very literal um, interpretation of, of what he's saying is very literal. And that is that that people confuse him constantly with this with this TV character. And he's not that TV character. He doesn't come from Vulcan. He comes from Boston. They're, very, they're two different entities. Uh, that's all he was really saying is that people constantly come up to him on the street, and parents would introduce him as Mr. Spock to, the, to their kids. And the kids would look at him and say, that's not Spock. There's no ears. There's no eyebrows. <laughs> there's no haircut. There's no uniform. What are you talking about? Um, but the fact of the matter is that ever since that book was published, a lot of fans got were very angry thinking that he was distancing himself from the character, uh, that he was saying that he was more uh, had more talent and ability than just playing Spock, that he was trying to move on from the character. Um, and that wasn't really the case. And he has spent his entire career, since that book was published, apologizing for mistitling that book because he never meant to distance himself from Spock. And I think he realized very early on that that Spock brought a lot of opportunity for him. Yes, there was people who identified him as that his his most iconic, but his most famous role was Spock. But Dad did a, he, you know, a tremendous amount of work that was not related to Spock that was in part due to his popularity and celebrity from Spock. So I don't think it's, it's that he later re-embraced the character. I don't think that really is the case at all. I think he had a, a strong embrace on Spock to begin with. I mean, there's dialogue between him and Spock in I Am Not Spock, clearly indicating that, that Spock Spock is very much present in my dad's mind and his his alter ego. And there's a lot of Leonard and Spock. And there's a lot of Spock and Leonard. You can't divorce the two, period. So um, I I think that he was – and he he never had a problem, you know, participating in the feature films either, even though he was the last to sign on. And we talk about this as well uh, in my film, For the Love of Spock, about the fact that there was a merchandising issue with Paramount. All this merchandise that was being sold at the Federation Trading Post on Telegraph Avenue – uh, the money was going into the Paramount coffers and not into the pockets of the the actors who created those characters. So uh, that was a very big issue because there were provisions in in their contracts, uh, particularly dad and Bill, that they were to be paid a royalty and they were not being paid. Um, and so there was uh, you know, there was some legal action taken. Uh, And Dad was waiting for that legal. And and Paramount stalled. This is, you know, this is very typical business uh, in Hollywood. It's just just business as usual. Um, But they wanted to start the—after the tremendous success of Star Wars, Dad knew that there was going to be, you know, uh, that Paramount was going to be calling him about, you know, getting involved with another Star Trek project in the feature franchise. And he just— Bided his time and and sure enough, they came his agent called him and said they want you to be in the movie and and Dad's attitude was like, you know, well, deal with this merchandising issue, and I'd be happy to talk about the movie so that's kind of really what the history of that was. I don't think it was ever a case of of Dad saying that you know to the fan base I don't want to be Spock anymore
0: no yeah, well and, and I think what's really nice about the way that's handled in the documentary is that he very much rightfully so is fighting for what is owed to him for those years and years of merchandising spock but what i love is the cap on that scene is the press conference for the motion picture and he handles the answer in such a classy way they say well just takes the mail longer to get to vulcan (laughs) because you know what it's really not anybody's business what the business behind that was i thought he handled that really beautifully
2: yeah, I I thought so too. I mean, uh <laughs> I think I it, it was at that meeting he he got, you know, he told me I, I I saw Charlie Bludorn, Charles Bludorn who was who was like the president of Gulf and Western, the parent company to Paramount, you know, came over to him and shook his hand and uh and gave him a hug and told him that he handled himself very well, very politically that day. Uh which is so interesting because um when uh Dad told me when Paramount acquired Desilu Studios in Star Trek and he was at a function where Charlie Bluthorn was there. He said he never paid any attention to him. He didn't really know what Star Trek was. So they had kind of come full circle And and, uh, and you know, my dad really was... You know, he was he had a strong sense of decorum that it was just business um, and he wanted to put on a good face and he wanted to be politically correct. Um, and he knew that, you know, that art and, and uh, business uh, in the entertainment industry
1: is, a, is a, you know, is a tough kind of tug of war sometimes. And I think he really understood that. I want to ask, you mentioned um, a moment ago, uh, obviously, uh, people listening to this show especially, I mean, they. Uh, I, I don't want to say they can't separate Leonard Nimoy from Spock, but, I mean, you mentioned a moment ago all of the other things that your dad did. I mean, there are the other movies he directed, there are the other acting roles he had, There's, um, there are the albums, there's the photography. If you, and I'm, I'm going to be unfair, if you had to turn people on to one other thing— That your dad did. Yes, there's Spock, and you know about Spock, but here's this other thing that I want to make sure you see, or I want to make sure you know this. What's what's the one other thing that you would turn people on to? Well, it's definitely the theater
2: work. The theater work was outstanding. Outstanding. He's just fabulous to watch. I mean a lot of people came to see Fiddler on the Roof. They th- I think they came to see Spock mm-hmm. and what they saw was an actor uh, who really was on the, t- you know, on top of his game uh, who really had craft, who really was dedicated to the work and um, it-, it was so much fun traveling around with him during the summers and watching him in his very, you know, different performances. We talk a lot about Man in the Glass Booth, but once he got his sea legs uh, on Broadway on Equus, which he he had assumed the role from uh, I think it was Tony per- Anthony Perkins um, he had followed him on, on Broadway uh, playing that role and I was uh, in and out of New York that summer because I was interning on Capitol Hill in Washington DC and, and every other weekend I'd fly to New York to watch him he was fabulous I mean he was just mesmerizing he was so good uh, and so dedicated and, and there was also full circle with B.B. Anderson so many great plays uh, that dad had performed in his one-man show was Vincent and, you know, if people were lucky enough to see any of his uh, theatrical live theater performances, um, I think that, you know, that they were very fortunate. And I think that is the one thing that people really um, should be aware of, because that he was really in his milieu. That was really his element. And and that's where he really felt that he was stretching himself uh, as an actor and and following
1: in the models that he had always kind of, you know, idolized as a kid. All right, so I have a question that can really only be asked in the 21st century and beyond. And forgive me, there's a tiny bit of a setup here. Uh, you're a director. Spock is a character. Uh, Paramount used his image for so many things for so many years. Um, In light of what has turned out to be the biggest movie of 2016 and is still rolling, uh, somebody comes and says, hey, we want to do a TV show or a movie, and we want Leonard Nimoy as Spock. And we think we have the technology now to do that. What's your reaction?
2: Well, we just saw, uh, who did we see? Christopher Lee? No. Uh, uh, Peter, Peter Cushing. Cushing. Peter Cushing, yeah. thank you. We should have saw Peter Cushing in Rogue One, <laughs> and he's fabulous. <laughs> God, he's, it's awesome. It's an awesome piece of film, what they did. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's, we, we would. I, I think it's an interesting idea and uh, to be explored, and, um, I, I, I would be open to it, frankly. I mean, I would, it would be really interesting. I think that they did an excellent job on Rogue One, and and uh, and if the technology is there, I, I, I'd say uh, uh, sure. Let's see what you can do. I think Dad would be open to that as well. I don't, you know, I, I really do. It's just it's a, depending on what the project is and and if the story is there. It's always about story. That's the, one of the first lessons I learned from my father uh, when he was trying to help me transition into a directing career. It's it's all about story. Uh, um, and if the story's not there, no one's going to really care about the technology.
0: I'm curious, in the interviews that you conducted for, for The Love of Spock, you, you talked to people from all walks of life, people who worked on Star Trek, people who were fans, people who were famous in their own right for doing other things, and Neil deGrasse Tyson, you have Bobak in there. Um, what What surprised you? And what, what did you learn from these people that, that you sort of didn't realize you would pick up when you did it?
2: Well, what I think what surprised me the most was the uh, impact that my father's participation in the J.J. J. Abrams incarnation had on that cast. Because uh, interviewing all those people in September of 2015, when they were making Beyond, we flew up to Vancouver to interview them. Um, they all individually said pretty much the same thing was that they that his involvement in the new that this new episode of the franchise gave them a, a sense of real validity that they were really carrying the torch and the heart and soul of Star Trek, and they were not just a spin off project. They felt they had his blessing, they had his support, they had his participation, uh, and they were really energized by that, um, so to speak. And um, they felt that, um, even though my father was gone, they still felt that energy was still kind of reverberating with them, resonating with them uh, during the making of Star Trek Beyond. And uh, that was... Pretty surprising to me um, that they were so forthcoming, so generous in their compliments, their love, their commentary about dad's participation in Star Trek at that point. And uh, it, it a great solace to me because we just had you know, it wasn't that long ago we had lost him. Um, it was it was shocking in a way, overwhelming emotionally to
1: hear that from them, each one of them individually. You did an, an exhaustive examination of things while you're making the movie. Um, What have been some of the biggest surprises or biggest reveals, I mean, since the movie? It seems like on a project like this, you know, it's done, it's wrapped, you're showing it to people. Somebody must have come to you and said something, I'm assuming anyway. I mean, have there been any big surprises uh, since the movie was released? Well, I think the biggest surprise for me since the movie was released is that
2: it's it's ongoing now. Even, you know, we're – there's – people contacting us from different film festivals all over the world who still want to show this film um, in, in a theatrical setting, which is a little unusual because we we had a short theatrical run in September of last year, the, the week of the 50th anniversary of the first airing of the first episode of the original series. And um, and so we've kind of exhausted that run, but yet we uh, the first quarter of this year, there's a dozen film festivals, most mostly interestingly enough, and surprising to me um, that there are so many Jewish film festivals uh, I- I- across this country, all of whom want this film for obvious reasons because of my father's uh, background, because the Spock Salute is based on uh, uh, some ex- you know Jewish tradition experiences that my father had. So that's still kind of blowing my mind. We're still getting requests from all over the world to show this film, um, and the theatrical booking agent we've been working says that, that this is kind of uncanny for it to to be continued on. It seems to be taking on a life of its own. I'm also pleasantly surprised by the the amount of uh, passionate commentary we've gotten about the film. Uh, reading this on uh, on our, our web page and on our iTunes page, uh, the reviews on on Netflix, the reviews on Amazon.com, where the film is available, uh, the Rotten Tomatoes reviews. Um, they've all been, you know, with some exceptions here and there, they've been pre- predominantly very positive. Um, and I was wondering worried that because you know we the film is a, a careful balance between um, the life and legacy of mr spock and that of leonard nimoy and i we threw in this third element of my relationship to spock and my dad and and we worked very hard to find a balance to make sure that it was spock centric first and foremost and next other, a story of leonard nimoy and his life and legacy and lastly about my experience with spock and my dad um and it seems that basically Based on the positive reaction we've gotten, passionate reaction from the fans, that we 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 have hit that note with that we we've hit a, you know uh, we've hit the right spot for them, the right balance for them, because people seem to be very happy with what we've produced with this film, and I'm just so relieved, frankly, um, that this gift to the fans has been something that they really have cherished.
0: So, with that said, what's next for you? I mean, you're the, this project has taken on a life of its own. You'll continue to show it in film festivals. Um, obviously, we want people in our audience to watch it if they haven't seen it yet. Um, but what do, you, uh, what do you plan to do next?
2: Well, I'm, I'm working again with Dave Zappone, the producer on For the Love of Spock, and his production team uh, on a project that they had been working on before I came along with my dad and the Spock project, which is Deep Space Nine. They were... Um, a couple years ago, Dave partnered with uh, Iris Stephen Baer, the executive producer of Deep Space Nine, uh, to put together a documentary because there's been this huge resurgence of interest in that series, um, and particularly in terms of how it was placed with all the other sequel spinoffs with uh, The Next Generation and then after Deep Space Nine came Voyager and Enterprise. And there's been so much interest in Deep Space Nine um, that they were working on this documentary. And I have since become a huge fan of Deep Space Nine. I've been attending a lot of conventions promoting For the Love of Spock and and meeting with, with the, the crew and the cast of Deep Space Nine and looking back at the film from that series. And I just fell in love with it. And I think there's a... A great story to be told there of this incredible resurgence of, of people who are in love with it, the fans at the conventions who are in love with it. They're lining up to get autographs of all the cast members from that for that series. Uh, and so right now, the next focus for us is to be to complete that project. Um, and that's where our primary focus is going to be um, over the next uh, couple of months. We have a, a new web page, a Facebook page uh, up on, uh, on this project that we're working on, and I'm very excited about it. I'm not even sure what our handle is, but if you look up Deep Space Nine on Facebook, you should be. A, we don't have the web page up yet; it will mm-hmm. be up shortly. We have a Facebook page. Go to Facebook. Uh, you know, search for Deep Space Nine. You should be able to find us and cool. and be updated as to where we are at on that project. So you talked about how your father had uh,
0: this sort of relationship with the Spock character and. I like you describing that uh, parents would introduce him as Mr. Spock to their kids, and clearly he is not. He is an actor who is human. (laughs) Um, But that said, how was your father most like Spock?
2: Well, my father was a very introspective person, a very quiet person. It it was um, sometimes uh, difficult to get him to react, to engage. Uh, He could be aloof. He could, you know, He's just very contemplative, you know, and uh, uh, even, you know, shortly before he died, I would, I would sometimes, very often I would have a conversation with him, and I would be trying to get his opinion, you know, a, a solicitor's opinion on something, and he would be very reserved, or he'd give me a very short, terse answer. And, and sometimes I would say to him, Dad, you sound like Spock, and I need a little bit more. Uh, can you can you switch back into Leonard mode and give me something a little more you know uh, a little more detail on what you mean or what you're feeling or what your thoughts are. Um, and so in that way I mean they're very they're very similar and my dad was also very he did things in a very methodical logical way you know my dad had an incredibly fine mind for a man who had so little formal education this is a guy who's basically a high school dropout I mean he just was not academically inclined at all um, my my uncle his older brother went to Boston Latin one of the finest grade schools in the country but dad went to Boston Public which is a, you know a, a, a tier beneath that you know and, and my uncle went on to MIT. My dad didn't have any college education. Uh, Yet he really was a renaissance man I think much like Spock in that he just had a, a, a wide breadth of knowledge about a number of different subjects and a keen interest, a keen intellect, a hungry intellect uh, about uh, and Nick Meyer talks about this in our film about everything that go- was going on in the world, whatever it would be, whether it was art or politics um, or photography um, or or uh, popular culture. Uh, you know, all of these things he had an interest in. So um, I think in that way there's a real mind meld between the two characters. Well,
0: then obviously I have to ask, how is he the least
2: like Spock? Oh, how was he the least like Spock? Um, I think my dad really liked a good joke. He really loved to laugh, and uh, I have this fabulous picture of him. My parents used to throw parties in the, in the '70s uh, at our home in Westwood, and I have this great picture. Uh, where a good friend of his, a, a writer, a television writer named Don Siegel, who was a very funny guy. He wrote a lot. Of, he, he just he wrote a lot of a comedy. And uh, there's this picture of Don leaning over and whispering in my dad's ear, and my dad has this. He's just cracking up hysterically uh, about something that Don said. And uh, I just uh, it's just a great moment because my dad loved to be to laugh. He really really loved to be with friends and uh, be at these parties and. And find the joke. I mean, he was always looking at, at having fun. That was a, was really important to him, even in the work. I mean, he would tell me if you can't find the joy in the work that you do, uh, the the emotional joy, you know, uh, which is kind of counter, you know, point to Spock. Um, then then you've got to, you know then you're not at the you're not doing the work that you need to be doing. You've got to find things that really inspire you and give you really give you happiness. And and there was a lot of emotion in my dad.
1: He really you know pursued those kind of things in his. Life. Wife. When you were just saying what you were saying about your dad and liking a good joke, one of my favorite pictures, and it's one of I mean, I'm sure it's one of everybody's favorite pictures, but it's the one of uh, of uh, Kirk and Spock smiling and eating cake. And it's not Kirk and Spock smiling and eating cake, it's Shatner and Nimoy smiling and eating cake. But there's something about, yeah. there's something just, I mean, it sort of sums up exactly what you were just saying in a way that I don't think I ever actually. As much as I love that picture, I, I appreciate it so much more now, actually, just from, just from the conversation. Yeah,
2: Dad liked a good laugh, and they were always trying to get him to crack up on the set. You know, that was a big part of uh, Bill's objective. When they cut the camera, they were trying to get Leonard to laugh. So uh, that's a great moment. I love that. If I know exactly which photo you're talking about, and that's one of my favorites as well.
0: Adam, thank you so much. The, the film was such a pleasure to watch and, and even better getting to talk to you about it for a little
2: while. Thank you for the, for the privilege of being here. It was my pleasure. And uh, to you and all your fan base, as always, live long and prosper. So we mentioned in our chat with
0: Adam a couple of photos. Now, uh, he was nice enough to send along two from his personal collection. And if you go to our website, you will see Adam's pick of his favorite picture of his father. It's Leonard on stage looking very contemplative uh, at what appears to be a convention, probably sometime 2013 or so. Now, the other one is Leonard and Leonard's mother and father and just a tiny peak of Adam all hanging out at the L.A. Farmer's Market in 1967. I love that picture. It's such a perfect capture of a moment in time. Please go check that out. It's at MissionLogPodcast.com in our Discovered Documents.
1: MissionLogPodcast.com is one of three or four websites you're going to hear about now. So have pen and paper ready for the rest. (laughs) DS9Documentary.com. When we Talk to Adam, uh, they hadn't even set up the site yet. I think he actually mentioned in the interview that the site was on its way. And uh, and now it's it's up and running and uh, and just going full bore. At DS9documentary.com. That'll take you to the Indiegogo page. And um, as things gear up for production, uh, that'll be the place to go to get more information about uh, that documentary as it's going. And of course, you can also follow Adam on Twitter at Adam... Underscore Nimoy, and you can follow uh, the movie on Twitter as well, because it's always tweeting at (laughs) DS9 Doc, that's D O C, uh, short for documentary, uh, at DS9 Doc.
0: Oh, wait, I got another thing for you to write down. Mm. Well, you meaning everybody listening. So we sincerely want to thank all of our listeners. Well, everybody just for listening to the show that that makes my day. Uh, But we also want to thank those who have joined us through Patreon Um, and you, if you haven't yet, you can join those listeners at Patreon dot com slash mission log. It is your way to directly support this show and uh, and you can get some cool swag.
1: That's at Patreon.com slash Mission Log. Okay, now flip the paper over because there's more stuff to write. (laughs) There are many ways to get in touch with us, and here they are now. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you would like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at Roddenberry.com. Our show website including discovered documents is at missionlogpodcast.com and please do remember we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log.
0: Wait, 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 don't don't stop, don't hang up just yet.
1: <laughs> Just just a little last piece of business oh, here. they should have hired a stenographer or something, shouldn't they? Yes, we yeah, agree. always do. If only there was a way to record this information. Maybe if they recorded it, then they could just play it back for themselves instead of all the writing they're doing right now.
0: Ah, yeah. Maybe that's the thing to do. I know, but you, you got more. I got more. The show's not complete without reminding you. The mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. You can find out more at Roddenberry.com. Write that one down. And for more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM. That's trek.fm. And to wrap out your long, long list of places to go on the Internet for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com.
1: Coming up, more things. <laughs>